And, and by the way, if you ever want to teach a class at Otter Creek, you have to take a technical course before you do anything. It's just not. But ne next week it's going to be a lot different because we're just going to actually like look at the Bible. It's going to be a really, it's going to be a different deal. Okay, um, Doctor Benny. So I, I'm, he comes in right as I'm getting ready to apologize. I, I. Uh, Morning. I do make an apology because Becca last week said, so next week we're going to cover Jude. And I'll be honest with you, I've been in this class, and it, it's, been a, it's been a great class because not only is Jeff a great teacher, but he, he had, the way that he's laying the New Testament out is something I'm not sure everyone has had an opportunity to think about in their lives. That we're, we're almost... To the end here, and we got one guy left except for Jude. And if you look at Jude, probably timeline, we have no idea. We have no clue. We have no clue on Hebrews. We have no clue on, we know Peter and Paul are dead, 64. We know that. Um, but as far as when Hebrew, who wrote Hebrews, when Hebrews came out, why it came out, we have no clue. And so for us to date that, we're going to, I think it's safe to say it happened before the destruction of the temple, which was in 70. So it's somewhere between 64 and 70. We probably feel safe about that. I didn't even intend to. Get, but Jude is pretty much the same deal. It has very little theological purpose, except he was a half-brother of Jesus. And uh, so when Becca said, you know, I've been thinking about Hebrews. Uh, I've taught Hebrews uh, exegetically. Um, two different times at Otter Creek, and it's taken us 24 to 28 weeks to go through it verse by verse. And if you haven't done that, you need to do that. We need more exegetical classes. I've talked to JB at length this, this week about uh, snipping, at the, snipping at the Bible, but instead of getting into the Bible. So in the fall, I've committed to teach uh, the book of 1 Samuel, and we're exegetically going to go through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, in in the fall, it, not that I love First Samuel, but it, we're going to get exegetically into something and look at how the writer wrote it, why he said what he said, and how how it would have an effect on us. Um, but you know, next week I want to teach the Gospel of John. I've taught the Gospel of John; it's my favorite. I've taught the Gospel of John four times exegetically at Otter Creek, and it takes twenty eight to thirty two weeks. So for somebody to assign me, Jeff, for somebody to assign me looking at the book of Hebrews in a week. I'd like to point out you volunteered for that. I, well, it's because it's the only, only ones I really cared about at that point in time. It was during the middle of the pandemic he sent me an email, and I said, well, I'll take these because I'm not going to have to do much. Wrong, <laughs> wrong. Um, when, you, when, you hit, when you know what's there and you want to cram as much as possible, into it, 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 becomes, it becomes a really tough deal. So when Becca said we're going to look at Jude, and I don't know when we're going to look at Jude, but when Becca said you're going to look at Jude next week, I went, no, we're going to look at Hebrews. So I've had a real, just telling you, I've had a really good week in preparation for this. So if you guys get nothing out of the class, I got a tremendous amount this week <laughs> just by going back to my notes and just going, wow. This is this book is incredible, and if you could just live your life studying one book and hoping to get 
something out of it, this one is a good one to study. Josh all the time plays the game. If you were stuck on a desert island and you could pick two Old Testament books and two New Testament books, what would they be? Well, definitively for me, it would be Hebrews and John. I think you get more out of that than anything. The Old Testament, definitely Genesis and probably Isaiah. Because Isaiah, even though we don't know a lot about Isaiah, we don't, know, we don't study Isaiah very much, he got a glimpse of what it's going to be like. And not just what it's going to be like with us in it, but what it's going to be like when the heavens and the new earth come about. And that's, that's something I want, to, I want to know more about. So, turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to, I, I, I'm not a PowerPoint person either, uh, but I, I did put some things on PowerPoint just because I think it will make it more efficient for us to look at and be faster. Um, I just did my apology for why we're not doing 28 weeks of Hebrew. <laughs> I talked to him this morning. So, Dr. Uh, Dr. Michael Easley, who uh, I think is tremendous, he's one of the best expository preachers in America. He says the book of Hebrews provides the perfect integration of the Old Testament and New Testament Christology, unique in all of Scripture. And therein lies the problem. Therein lies the problem on why we can't assign um, authorship to this book. Because textually, um, the, the, the area of textual criticism has been um, enhanced with the use, use of computers. So we can go in and look at the phraseology, the words used in Hebrews, and we can know that it, it looks like no other author. Uh, in in the New Testament, so you can't really get there that way. Um, as early as Origen, the Alexandrian church father who who died about two twenty two fifty five, no one knew who the writer of Hebrews was for sure. After careful study of authorship of he Hebrews, Origen wrote, but who it was that really wrote the epistle, God only knows, and that ought to be good enough for us. We ought to be able to accept that he accepted the book as totally canonical, and that ought to be good enough for us. But for those of us who are nerds and really like to track this stuff, that is a challenge. So Origen and I are going to have to debate in the new heavens and the new earth. Ancient testimony uh, mentioned only four possibilities. That would be all of the ancient writings list as many as 13 possible people who wrote the book of Hebrews. But these names kept coming up over and over. Paul, Luke, Barnabas, and Clement. Uh, who wrote most of the New Testament? Paul. Luke. Luke. Luke wrote more words. He wrote more words than Paul. Paul wrote more books. Who? I'm sorry? Oh. Trick question is what they're saying. See, see, no, what Dell always says is you were rash in that answer. No. Uh, so I'm trying. No, I told Dr. Bimmy. He taught us that just a few weeks ago. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I, I'm not. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm going to quit apologizing. So, um, one, of the, one of the best. Uh, so, so, who would be. The book of Hebrews is all about the priesthood. It's all about Levitical law and the priesthood. Who would 
have been steeped in that. What famous New Testament writer do we know is steeped in that kind of stuff? Paul. Paul is steeped in that kind of stuff. But when we line Paul up uh, textual criticism for uh, literally the German uh, form Geschichte, which is uh, textual. So when we line that up, I'll get out of your way. Um, but when we line that up, it doesn't match with Paul. He doesn't use Pauline words. He uses Pauline thought, but he does use Pauline words. So the best theory I've read in the recent years is that this was a series of sermons that Paul has given, compiled by Luke, and then that's how we got it. So I don't know, but it would seem plausible because Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anybody. So if he wrote another letter and gave it to somebody, they would say, okay, uh, you, you, know, uh, you know that there are pseudonymous and pseudographical works that came after this and how you differentiate between the two. Let me just say this about Hebrews. The book of Hebrews has never been challenged as being canonical or not because of its subject matter. Its subject matter is nothing but Jesus. How could it not be canonical? So, <clears throat> the recipients here, I, once again, I don't know, but if you look at Acts 6 and 7, 6 verse 7, it says this word. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, including a large number of priests who became obedient to the faith. Now, there were as many... As during the time of Jesus, there were as many as 40,000 men who would, were devoted to the priesthood in the temple. If you read in Leviticus, it, tell, it talks about they serve two weeks a year. It tells exactly how they do it. They served two weeks a year. They had special training to become priests. The first thing is that they had to be uh, sadiqs. You ever heard that word before? Anybody? From you. Okay, but uh, concerning who? Mary. M Mary was a Anuwa because women couldn't be Sadiqs. Joseph, Joseph was Sadiq. Literally, it means righteous man. It comes from the Hebrew, Sedekai, and you're going to hear that a whole lot today as we go through here. You'll see why in just a minute. Um, <clears throat> okay, so maybe... Just maybe, Paul. Some other, one of these priests had written Paul and just said, "What do we do? We're good guys, but we all believe in Jesus. We believe that Jesus is a, it fulfilled. A, what's going to be our job? There is no temple. God left the temple in Ezekiel ten. We've been without God in the temple for a long time. All that changed. Now then, synagogues." Uh, synagogues all throughout Israel are the places where people gather. And, you know, every time I, I love being around people uh, that teach me things. Ronnie, who was in here doing uh, the Israel tour the other day, he taught me just this past time. I have not known this all my life. It's been out there. If I had been smart enough and studied hard enough, I would have known this. But the word synagogue is Greek. I had no clue. So synagogues all throughout Galilee, that's a, the Greek 
formation of the word Knesset. You know, the, you know, the Israeli uh, parliament meets in the Knesset. It just literally means gathering place. Good. Uh, okay. <laughs> so before we start, we've got to do this. What is the Jewish big deal about angels? Because the first two chapters of Hebrews is about angels. What's the big deal to Jews about angels? Okay, let me just give you let me give you the big one. Here's the big one. Who have this is in Stephen's speech in Acts 7. It's not in the old. So who have received the law by disposition of angels and have not kept it? How did we get the law? I thought I thought Moses went up on the mountain and got the law. He did, but evidently angels gave it to Moses. Angels may have written it on the stones. I don't know. But evidently it came through by angels. And so the Jews were putting angels on a pedestal. Angelology was a real thing. Um, you can get my wife to move. She's got plenty of room. <laughs> Evidently, angelology was a really big deal. And people were putting angels above everything. Maybe even on the equivalency of Jesus. Maybe angels were more important than Jesus. And Jesus, and whoever wrote Hebrews is absolutely refuting that. Wherefore ser serves the law? It was added because of transgression till the seed should become whom, to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. The word spoken by angels was steadfast. Every transgression and disobedience received was just recompense of reward. And this is from an apocryphal book, The Antiquities of the Jews. And for ourselves, we have learned from God the most excellent of our doctrines, the most holy part of our law, by angels or ambassadors. This is a long, a long deal that, if you read it, is, is really complex and it's really good. Uh, this is in the book of Jubilees. Which, uh, and, and the angel of presence, where did the angel of presence reside? In the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies, in front of the cherubim, in front of the, in front of the showbread. The angel of presence was constantly there. The angel of presence spake to Moses according to the word of the Lord, said, write a complete history of creation, how six days the Lord finished all of his works, and after that he created all and kept the Sabbath on the seventh day, and hallowed it for all ages, and appointed it as a sign for his works. So angels were a big deal to the Hebrews. Now, let's do the introduction of the book of Hebrews. Remember, before you read this, just remember that the Jewish people were used to God intervening in their lives. Remember as they came out of, out of the desert, the pillar of fire, the cloud, and the pillar of fire. God was always with They always had something to say, God is with us. Even their prophets, their priests, their kings, all had words from God. These prophets were holy men, wise men. And they could tell God was with them. The presence of God, the Spirit of God, if you will, as Josh says this morning, and I'll never forget it, that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the wild child of the Trinity. Just remember that. That's, that's a great, great phrase. So, 
the point is that from the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, from the book of Malachi until the time of Jesus was 450 years. In that 450 years, God did not speak. And the Jews were really bothered by this, big time. So they, they met in different councils. One of the councils, they said, you know, we're just not, God has abandoned us because we're not holy enough. And one of the ways we're going we're gonna to bring that back is we're going to say, we're never going to say the name of God. We're going to make the name of God so holy that we never say it. And in that, maybe he'll think we're holy and he'll come back to us. And so in synagogues and Knesset's on Sabbath, they would read Scripture. And when they would come to the Word of God, whoever was reading would go, Adonai. Which means Lord. And everybody would look at each other and go, Adonai. But they knew that what they were saying was the name of God. And wink, wink, we're not going to say it, praying that God will come back to us. So, for 450 years, nothing. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times, many various ways. But in these last days, He's spoken to us, you know, literally in Greek, this is not the prophets, it's prophetness. And literally in the Greek, that is not a, a, a descriptive of Jesus. His son, that's not in there. It's sonness. So in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophetness and many times in many various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by sonness, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. That You would think that that word was cosmos. It's not cosmos, it's ionos, which literally means he made the ages. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. You think of Colossians, you think of Philippians, this is exactly the same description. Sustaining all things by his powerful word and after he, that is a definitive article and it should be capitalized, after he, I guess I could capitalize it, but I didn't. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now let me build my case. Whoever the writer is, that's what he's saying. To whom did God ever say, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. You are my son. Today I become your father. He didn't say ever say it to an angel. He said it to Jesus. This is just another verse in the Old Testament that says exactly the same thing. I declare for you, this is when they're talking about who's going to build God's house. I declare for you that the Lord is going to build a house for you. That's us. When your days are over and you go to your ancestors, I will raise up offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne Forever, I will be his father. He will be my son. This is to David. This is God talking to David. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. 
His throne will be established forever. The Lord declares to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over, and when your days are over and you rest for you, I will raise up your offering. Is that the exact same thing? No, it's not, because one's Chronicles. This is 2 Samuel, but it's saying the exact same, that exact same thing. I will be his father, he will be my son. <clears throat> Deuteronomy. Uh, the Lord reigns and let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice, clouds and thick darkness surrounding righteousness and justice for the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lighting lights up the world and the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. All people see his glory. All who worship him, all who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him, all you gods. And literally, that should be translated, all you angels. Worship him, all you angels. And then in Psalm 97, let all God's angels Worship Him. Now, if you go through the first chapter of Hebrews, that's, this is the, all I did is put... I want you to see that what He did is not write a bunch of gobbledygook. He just started quoting Scripture. And He could not quit. He's like, all you people who believe in angels, let me show you how much better Jesus is than angels. Get this angelology stuff out of your theology. <clears throat> Praise the Lord, my soul, my, my Lord, you are, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with, a, as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his upper chambers and on the waters. He makes the cloud his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, angelos, flames of fire, his servants. By the way, Another, another uh, thing uh, with Hebrews is, does anyone know what great contribution Alexander the Great made to Christianity? What's the greatest contribution Alexander the Great made to Christianity? The language. The language. The Septuagint. Say it with me. The Septuagint. <laughs> the Septuagint. The Septuagint literally, mean, it literally means 70. As a matter of fact, the abbreviation, if you read uh, theology books, the abbreviation is XII or VII. I'm looking at you, Dave. LXX. LXX. Thank you. It's not you. LXX, which literally means 70, and that's the Septuagint. It's because Alexander the Great, when he came to Jerusalem, he conquered the area, he got 70 of the brightest Hebrew scholars. And he said, translate your Bible into Greek. And that's going to be our language. Greek's going to be our language. I don't care what you speak. You can do your Hebrew on Saturdays, whatever. We're going to have it and we're going to have it available. Well, the writer of Hebrews uses the Septuagint for all of his Old Testament references. That's important to know. Alright. Uh, we're still doing this, I guess. Uh, <coughs> My heart, Psalm 45. There's a lot in there about angels. You don't worship angels. My heart is stirred by a noble theme. I recite verses from my king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You're the most excellent of men. Your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side. 
You mighty one, clothe yourself in splendor of majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the heart of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. The scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Your love, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the joy of all. So, besides the Gospel of John, this is Hotheos, besides the Gospel of John, this is the strongest language in the New Testament, which is a quote from the Old Testament about Jesus' divinity. In the Old Testament, we didn't know who Jesus was. This is saying, Jesus, Hotheos, our God. <clears throat> Alright. Uh, Psalm 102. In the beginning you laid the foundation of the earth, the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, they will be discarded. But you will remain the same, and your years will never end. Psalm 102 is a royal coronation psalm. This is when Jesus gets coronated to be the king of the earth. And this, so this whole psalm is about Jesus. <clears throat> okay, Psalm 110, the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Psalm 110. Every time you see this phrase, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. We sing it, we do everything. Every time you need to say to yourself, under your breath, Psalm 110. It's Psalm 110. This is a Davidic psalm. And I didn't have room to do what I should have done. The first four verses of that psalm are about Jesus becoming king. He's becoming king. The last four verses in that psalm are about Jesus becoming high priest. It's prophetic in that it's saying somebody can be a king and a priest. Somebody tell me real quickly, what happened to Saul when he tried to pull this off? Huh? He got fired. That's exactly how to say it. Nathan said, God is no longer with you. Today, you've lost your kingdom, big guy. You are not a priest. You're the king. We made you king. Play in that, but you don't get to do the other. <clears throat> You know, I've always read that and for a long time until you just stop and think about it. Jesus is called the Son of... I'm sorry? Man. Son of Man. Keep going. There's another one. There's another one. Son of David. You are the Son of David. The Lord. That's God. Says this is David talking. David sitting out in Bethlehem on the side of a hill watching sheep, and he wrote this down. The Lord says to my Lord, "Who is that?" That's the coming Messiah. That's Jesus, who is also David's son. 
Had David not had sons that carried the lineage, there would be no Jesus. Jesus was in David when David's watching sheep. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. That comes from Joshua. And if you go and read in Joshua, you can see instances where Joshua was capturing all these little fiefdoms as they came in to claim the land of Canaan. And they would bring the king before him. And they would lay the king in front of Joshua, sitting on, just looking. And he would put his feet on them. Now think about how demeaning that is. Until I make your enemies your footstool. This is Matthew. This is Jesus talking about this passage. When the Pharisees gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, well, how is it that David, speaking by the wild child of the Trinity, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies in, under your feet. And if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? I mean, I, if you were in that audience, what would you do? I'd go find me a calm church. Because Jesus has just challenged everything I know. <clears throat> and Randall, it's really just at the end of the trial with the high priest. Uh-huh. And at the priesthood? The high priest, yeah. priest asked him. Because this is the question that Jesus leaves him with. I think he actually spurred it when he was here. Okay. Personally, but, um, the See, everybody has their own theory. But the question that he asked stumps them. There's no more questions for Jesus. Right. Right. Trial and the high priest responds, Tell me, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? <coughs> he got he understood what the question meant. Yeah. He researched it and knew it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Knew it. Okay. This is just my way of keeping notes. So look at what happened. <laughs> now I've got Siri trying to ask me quick. Okay, I have no idea what I did. Sure, I understand. (laughs) (laughs) That reminds me of Dr. Floyd one day in Romans class, my freshman year, I'll never forget it. We were down in the basement in the whatever that is, and there was a just he was in the middle of doing and there was a loud noise in the outside and he just went the philistines are upon us <laughs> who thinks like that okay look at look at hebrews 4 i i just can't help um st- look at hebrews 4:12 <clears throat> the word of god is a living And the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates into even to dividing the soul, the spirit that joints the marrow. It judges thoughts and attitude, attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. You think about it. You think about uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. What do they say to God? We're naked. We're naked. 
And what did God do? Nothing is hidden from God. He, 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 the guy, the, well, where is Byron in here? Oh, uh, Sam Moore took me in his office. This is the president of, uh, of Thomas Nelson Publishing. Took me in his office before Byron was the president. He took me into his office and he said, um, this, I want you to see this Bible. And it's called the Bridges Bible. Because in it, the translation said, and God knit for them bridges. <laughs> so God made them clothes because they were naked before God. Uh, the high, think about the priest. That's who this audience is. Think about the high priest. What kind of garments did they wear? Priestly garments. You can read all about it in Leviticus. It takes two chapters to tell us how to make these garments. They've got inlaid stuff and all that. I mean, every one of them means something. and I have no idea. But they wore that because if they were to wear anything else in the presence of God, they would be naked before God. And then think about Jesus on the cross. What did He hide from God? <coughs> he was naked. All of us are naked before God without Jesus. That's it. So, <clears throat> everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Therefore, we have a great high priest. That word in Greek is mega. We got us a mega high priest. You want to be a priest? We got a mega high priest. Who has gone through into heaven. Jesus, Son of God, let us home fir firmly to the, to the faith that we profess or confess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I, I want to go down and look at one more. Every high priest is selected from among men, appointed to represent them in matters related to God and other gifts and sacrifices for sin. He is able to... What does your Bible say? I'm sorry? Deal gently. Deal gently. Is that NIV? Yes. Sympathize. Sympa it says sympathize? That's not good. <laughs> With those who are ignorant and gone astray since he himself has been subject to weakness. So every time, I, like, I, I love to go through the Scripture a chapter at a time. It's enough for me to be able to bite off in a week. And I will take my Greek linear Bible because I'm not as gifted as other people and can read from it, straight from Greek. But I, I came up one night, this is, I don't know, many years ago, I came up one night with these two words. The word for sympathize back in uh, 14, uh, the word for sympathize is, uh, uh, i got to read it, uh, sympathane, sympathane. Okay, and then you, so that's fine, but help me. And so you go down and you look at the one in verse 2, Phil, where it said, deal gently. That is metrio 
Pothane. Paige and Keegan, I, I know you guys know this because I used your example last time I did this. Um, but it's metriopothane. <clears throat> um, that means nothing to me. And so Dell and I go to some deal at, at uh, the Skimmerhorn on Sunday. Do you remember that? And George Goldman was sitting in front of me who teaches Greek at, at Lipscomb. And I, I'm sorry, I looked up, I looked all these words up and I'm trying to go, what's the difference between sympathane and metriopothane? And <clears throat> I said, George, you got to help me. Just think about it a while. Sympathane. And so we had this whole concert, whatever's going on, and George is just, his brain's just about to blow up. And at the end of it, he turns around and he said, measured. And that's it. If you go to a doctor or you go to a lawyer or you go to someone who is going to, if you go to a preacher, if you go to an elder, if you're going to lay yourself bare before them, are you going to get sympathy or are you going to get a measured response? What are you going to get? You're going to get a measured response. Why? Because if you pour yourself into everybody that comes to help you completely the way Jesus would, you would not be able to go through life. You have to go with a measure. That's what he's saying to these priests. You guys hear the sins of the people. They come to you, they lay bare, lay bare their souls, and you have a measured response. But notice the word he uses for Jesus. He's able to completely sympathize with us. It just blows me away how these guys write and they can use the Greek to just bring out things we would never think about. Let's keep going. We're almost done. <clears throat> um, okay, so here's the big one. So Melchizedek. Melchizedek is found in Genesis 14, Psalm 110, your priest in the order of Melchizedek, and eight times found in Hebrews. That's it. That's all we've got to go on. But if you were a priest, I guarantee you, you knew about Melchizedek. You had conversations about Melchizedek. How many of you know Charlie Brandon? Brother Brandon, uh, Josh and I were in a pretty boring elders meeting the other night. And I punched him and said, how many times did Brother Brandon take you to lunch? And he said, 10 or 12. And I said, how many times did the, did the conversation devolve into Melchizedek? And he said, everyone. Brother Brandon was obsessed with Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a <clears throat> priest a high priest of the God Most High, El El Yom. Not a priest of Yahweh. He was a high priest of El El Yom. This is, so David is a thousand years before Jesus. Melchizedek was a thousand years before David. So David, I mean, Melchizedek is 2,000 years before Jesus. And Remember when Abraham and Lot divided the portion and Lot chose the, the land below the Dead Sea? I mean, 
what a dingbat. <laughs> so there's, there's like five kings below the Dead Sea and Lot, Abraham's nephew, gets captured by one of those kings. And that, they've taken everything. They've taken all Lot's possession. They, he's a slave. And Abraham says, this will not stand. So Abraham, this is in, I don't know where it's in Genesis, probably Genesis 14. So a- Abraham um, goes down with 314 of his highly trained men individually, and he captures all five kingdoms. And he frees Lot, and he comes back, and he's coming up from the Dead Sea. Well, literally, the Dead Sea is only 14 miles from Jerusalem, so it's not that big a deal. On the Jericho Road, there's room for just two. <clears throat> so... And it's true, because you'll fall off and down a cliff. It's not a wide path. So he brings them up, brings whatever up. Literally, the word there is he took a tenth of what was captured and was going to offer it to Melchizedek. Here's the way it works. And that word there, and I could, I could look, if you don't need the word. Uh, but it means that... Everybody who was with Abraham would get all the gold, the silver, everything of any value. And they'd come and they'd say, look what we found. And they would put it down. And eventually that becomes a huge pile. In the middle of the day, and Abraham is on his throne or sitting, and all of his servants bring all this stuff and lay it at his feet. And the pile gets big. And Abraham takes a tenth, the top portion, the first fruits, if you will, of what was captured. And he gives it to Melchizedek. Why did he do that? Anybody? Was there a law? <clears throat> they tell him to do that. There's nothing at this point in time. Abraham is... The first monotheist. Monotheism is the gift of the Jews to the world. He's the first monotheism, but Melchizedek is also a monotheist. An early Canaanite priest of El Elyon is also a monotheist. So Abraham is not the only monotheist in the world. And when he meets Melchizedek, he says, here's one, he he doesn't record this, but Abraham thinks, here's one greater than I am. I mean, normally people bring him all the gifts. He's saying, I've got to give this guy gifts. He's awesome. Now, some people would say <clears throat> that that is a theophany or a Christophany, which that that is Christ pre that Melchizedek is Christ pre incarnate. I think Melchizedek really lived. I think this is a real story. Um, I do, I do believe in theophanies. I do believe in Christophanies that Jesus intervened at times and was there. I love, love the idea of that, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that this is one of those. And what does Melchizedek do in response? Somebody? He does what? Blesses him. He blesses him, but before he does that, he does what? Ask him. I'm sorry? Ask him. He brings communion out. Bread and wine. And they 
have communion. And I don't think for one minute that Melchizedek or Jesus didn't know what they were doing. They knew it. Yes? Thank you. So Melchizedek didn't, he wasn't necessarily worshiping the true God. El Elyon is the true God. It says he was a priest of El Elyon. Right there. He was a Canaanite priest? He was a Canaanite priest? He was Canaanite. This is 2,000 years. This, this is before Canaanite. This is when Canaanites ruled the land. This is before Joshua or Moses or Canaanite. This is when Canaanites were on. That was them in the land. How they got that, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm asking the same question. How do you pronounce God. Is that the same as Yahweh? Yahweh is the God, and I'm not getting, I'm not doing multiple gods. Yahweh is the manifestation of God to the Jews only. This is a, this is a bugger of Abraham connects the angels. He says, "I am the servant of the Lord, God Most High." Okay. But does that imply Yahweh? Uh, I <clears throat> Here's what I would tell you. Just in terms of timing, Yahweh's name is Moses. Just in terms of timing, Yahweh's name is to show up until Moses. That's exactly right. So basically, Melchizedek is like, I don't know really who this guy is, but I think there's one guy that's in charge of all this, and it's not all these little guys. Amen. That's the <coughs> Amen. Amen. And the Jews have their own name for God and worship Him in a specific way. But God most high... Okay, here's the best way to say this. Go to the Gospel of Luke. She brought forth the firstborn son back to the swine because the lady of the manger because of no room to the end. He dressed her shepherd with the Lord. We all landed. But by night, and so the angel words came upon us. The glory of the Lord shone round about the other sword of the angel said to him, Glory... To God, I need to just go there. Glory to God, most high. He's not doing what he's doing. God most high. This is a lot more interesting. <laughs> um, glory to the God. Glory to God, most high. So all through Scripture, we've not. Been, El Elyon is the God of Gentiles. The God of Yahweh requires certain things that doesn't require Gentiles. You know, if somebody else were teaching that class, they would have never brought this up. But this is kind of my this is kind of my bugger. Kind of, <laughs> it's not about this He did. You, you know, here's another one. Jethro Tull, the, the guy that Moses, the guy that Moses go to, mother, Moses' father-in-law. He was a priest of the Most High. Balaam and his donkey, the, uh, the Most High. It's mentioned in all the all the, it's, it's just fascinating. And I've talked to theologians. I've, I've talked to theologians all over the world, and they all look at me and go, "Oh, that's really." Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> <laughs> Amy Jill laughs at me. But God didn't necessarily reveal all this with customs and things that He was. Amen. Amen. They were operating. Extra canonical, they were operating outside. They were worshiping the one true God, the God most high. 
Okay, that's not even in Hebrew, so that's just an extra thing. Good night. <laughs> so, I got I got one more comment on on this because I can do Hebrews for years. It's fabulous. It's fabulous. Next week, Gospel of John. Um, but you know the great faith chapter. The great faith chapter is interesting because in the whole Old Testament canon. The word faith, hopistus, is found 100 times. In the, in the New Testament, the word faith is found 500 times. In the book of Hebrews, the word faith is found 36 times. In this one chapter, it's found 26 times. Faith is a big deal. And that it's by faith that you have been saved, not in and of ourselves, but in our belief in Jesus Christ. Um, that's where I want to end it because there's, there's other diatribes, but we don't have the time. Does anybody know how to fix this? <laughs> I mean, I'm in PowerPoint. It's supposed to be dedicated to that, but it's... All right. <coughs> Any questions? We're out. Adios.